Hey, hey, beer fans. Welcome to Experimental Brewing with Denny and Drew. I'm Denny Kahn. And I'm Drew Beecham. Together we're the authors of Experimental Homebrewing, Mad Science in the Pursuit of Great Beer, and Simple Homebrewing, now available at all your finest retailers and reviewed by Forbes.com. Wow, that's cool, huh? Right, and don't forget, if you've bought a copy of the book, uh, go and review it for us, please. That helps. Yeah, really. You can uh, go to Amazon.com and put in a review there. Now, between the two of us, we have over 40 years of homebrewing experience. I'm the guy known for weird beer and strange ideas. And I'm the guy who's known for questioning the conventional wisdom and coming up with a way to check it out. And on today's episode, of course, we'll be giving some of your feedback from our last couple of episodes. We're actually finally back to our regular episode format after a couple, well, actually, after a month. Uh, <laughs> it's been so long, I don't remember what regular is anymore. Uh, no, so, but we're going to be getting some of your feedback in. We're going to be going into the pub to talk to the beer news, because there's been some beer news while we've been gone. Uh, we're going to cover into the brewery and talk to you a little bit about, well, how to know when you're stuck and what to do about it. And then we're going to head into the lounge where we're going to be interviewing, well, the folks who won the homebrew shop of the year this year, Bitters and Esters in New York City. So sit back, relax. Maybe have a beer if you're not driving. That's right. But before we do all that, here's a few messages from the fine people who make this show possible. So please stick around. This episode is brought to you by Pico Brew, makers of the Zymatic and Pico Brewing Systems. The brewing systems of the future are here now. Discover how easy and rewarding it is to make great beer with Pico Brew. And by Craftmeister and BTF Iota 4. When you absolutely, positively need to make every surface clean, bust out the cleaners with professional power and home brewer safety. Make better beer with better chemistry. Choose Craftmeister. And by the American Homebrewers Association, a community of more than 45,000 individuals who share a common passion, beer. Since 1978, the HA has promoted and advanced the most delicious hobby in the world, providing brewing resources, supporting homebrewer-friendly legislation, offering exclusive member deals at breweries and homebrew shops, and hosting one-of-a-kind events like HomebrewCon and the National Homebrew Competition. Join your beer-loving peers at homebrewersassociation.org. And by you, our listeners, go to experimentalbrew.com to help support us. Click on the Patreon link to donate whatever amount you'd like to help support us and our charities. Click on the Brew Your Own Magazine link to subscribe to BYO. Or click on the HA link to join the American Homebrewers Association and receive a subscription to Zymergy Magazine. Part of the proceeds from those go to help support the podcast. Thanks for your support. Hey, welcome back, and thank you for sticking around after that break. Remember, if you talk to any of our sponsors, make sure you tell them that you heard about them here on experimentalbrew.com so that they can know they're spending their money kind of wisely. <laughs> now, if you haven't been paying attention to your feed, last week's episode of The Brew Files, number 67, was called Quaking in Long Beach. And it was an episode that I taped with Levy Freed down at Long Beach Beer Lab. We've had Levy here on the show before. And Levy's actually turned half of his beer production over to using these fancy new Norwegian quake yeast strains and talking about how he just turned around a Pilsner using the Oslo strain grain to glass in nine days. And actually, I think it may, I think it may have even been faster than nine days, but 
It's a really impressive. He's got some interesting tips and tricks, including some things that I haven't thought about. And I think that it's a very useful topic for you to hear if you're going to be playing around with these quakies. So go give that a listen. Yeah, they're certainly uh, popular and trendy these days. So if you're into them, if you're checking them out, check out that episode. We also want to say thank you to everybody who went to the trouble to uh, respond to our survey about beer after 60. Uh, we got a lot of responses, a lot of really interesting info. Uh, I'm collating them now, and we'll be talking about it on the next episode. So, uh, you know, if you're over 60, you're going to want to listen to that. And if you're not over 60 and you plan to be, you're going to want to listen to it, too. There you go. And of course, there's also, remember, the Queen of Beer is coming up. It's America's 23-year-old women's homebrewing competition, and it's returning under the auspices of, well, arguably somebody who is very organized and you know very gung-ho, Melissa McCann. And thanks this year to a sponsorship from both BSG and the Pink Boot Society, the Queen of Beer will be offering the Best of Show winner a scholarship for brewing courses at UC Davis as well as having their beer brewed at Drake's Brewing Company. so Both of which are very cool prizes, man. I mean, either of those alone would be rad. So <laughs> Yeah, that's right. Lady listeners, get your kettles going. you got some time. The entry window opens in October, so you got plenty of time to get your, your, your recipes designed and test batches done. Just go visit queenofbeer.beer for more details. And the big thing that we're looking forward to coming up in about a month is Hop and Brew School at Yakima Chief Hops in Yakima, Washington. And it's not too late for you to get there, too. And one of our lucky listeners is going to be winning two tickets to Hop and Brew School in Yakima. The contest just ended. We'll be going through the entries soon and announcing the winner on the next show. Uh, don't worry if you win. We'll get in touch with you before that so you have time to make all your uh, arrangements. Hop and Brew School is an amazing event. Uh, there are seminars. There is visiting hop farms, hop processing plants. You get to talk to the people who actually grow the hops. And there are a couple killer parties kicking off on Friday night with uh, a great party at Bailbreaker Brewing. Hop and Brew School at Yakima Chief Hops runs August 30th through September 3rd. You can go to yakimachief.com slash events to get a full description of Hop and Brew School. We also have a link to that on our website, experimentalbrew.com. And we hope we see you there because it's going to be a fun and hoppy time. Not to mention, it's going to be us recording in honor of our 100th episode of the show. That's right. Uh, so Drew will probably be more drunk than usual. I'm never that drunk. Okay. All right, and don't forget, you can support the podcast by leaving us a review in Apple Podcasts. You can click the AHABrewSwag.com code word experimental Amazon Brewers Friends or BYO links on the website. And by going to Patreon and pledging a buck or two or more to our charitable cause, which we have now selected for this part of the year is... It is called Chat with Champs. Chat with Champs helps kids going through cancer treatments by connecting kids with champions. Their outreach programs help kids during and after treatment so that they never feel alone. So please toss us a few bucks by clicking on the Patreon link at experimentalbrew.com and we will send it along to Chat with Champs. Uh, you know, kids in cancer. I mean, that's about the worst stuff that there can possibly be. So help out, make their lives a little bit better, please. And and don't forget, there is a experimental brewing Igor connection here because this charity was put together by Miguel Los Brown, whose daughter Sarah went through a 
bout of cancer, and she came through the other side with flying colors. And Miguel has been a Igor in the past and helped us out with multiple things. And so now they put this together. And so part of the idea is to be able to give kids walkie-talkies so they can talk to other kids in the cancer wards. Because oftentimes when the kids are in the cancer wards, because of the treatments, they're immunosuppressed. So they can't spend a lot of time hanging out with the other kids that are there. So this is there to kind of help. And this was Sarah's idea. So let's help Sarah achieve some more success with her idea. Hey, speaking of ideas, I've got an idea. What? Maybe in honor of this, we should change the name of the show to Chat with Chumps. Yeah, but you will have to find you a partner. <laughs> I got one, buddy. Mm-hmm. Well, but now it's time for us to do one of my favorite things. And it's time for us to do feedback. feedback. That's right. We got a couple pieces of feedback from our hiatus of feedbacking. Uh, one of them was, you remember we talked a little bit about a coconut IPA because I was talking about uh, coconut flavored hops, you know, the ones that are coming with these kind of woody coconutty tones and having a real struggle trying to understand how you would use those things. Cause a lot of times I think the woody tones distract from the rest of the characters in the IPA I want. So Joe Charles wrote in to say, I just wanted to let you know there is a coconut IPA made by Dogfish Head launched in 2016 called Lupa Luau. Just wanted to let you know they exist and it is a quite tasty IPA. So there we go. It is possible. I assumed it's possible. I just haven't done it yet or tasted it yet. You know, I we got some of those uh, coconut slash cedar slash lime hops uh, to play with a while back, mm-hmm. and I really, you know, I've really enjoyed the flavor from them. So I could see coconut in a beer actually working as long as there were the right other flavors to work with it. You know, I, I don't think you'd want to put it in something that was like. Super fruity, but a little bit of fruit and a little bit of slap in there. I can see coconut. Yeah. I mean, again, into the kind of the pina colada thing. I think what I'm mostly objective is kind of the, the woody tones, not so much the coconutty tones. Yeah. So, all right. And our next piece of feedback comes from David Evans, who you remember texted us in the last Q&A episode about his raspberry wheat oddness. And he says, I think you guys are right. It was the USO5. Thinking back, I can notice what you call peachiness. I think I didn't recognize it as a flavor because it doesn't really have any sweetness to it. I'm historically a liquid yeast user, but I bought a few packs of USO5 to make some small batches, so I'd have the ability to to easily use a partial pack and save the rest for later. I've only used it once before, this batch, but I think I masked that flavor with lots of hops. Now that I've cold crashed and kegged, it's much better. I don't taste it at all anymore. I'm guessing any little bit of yeast left in suspension is covered by the raspberry tart flavor. I'll have to throttle the raspberry edition in the future, one pound per gallon. I was in denial of it being too strong at first, but when my wife commented that she actually liked it, I could no longer lie to myself. <laughs> That's a good thing, man. Okay, so, uh, yeah, really. Here's a suggestion for David and uh, anybody else. Uh, Try Lollamond BRY97. Uh, they sent me a care package not too long ago, and I've been playing around with it. I think that it is much cleaner than USO5. Uh, remember, its origin is Ballantine, and that was the yeast that Ken Grossman used when he was a home brewer, working on what would eventually become Sierra Nevada Pale Ale. And, you know, then that yeast went on to become Yeast 1056 WLP001. Admittedly, USO5 came from 1056, but it just doesn't taste like it to me and to a lot of other people. So if you're looking for another nice, clean, dry yeast to try, check out BRY97. I think you're going to be really happy. I sure as heck am. Well, there you go. As long as Denny's happy, 
everybody's happy, happy, right? That's right. <laughs> if I'm happy, then I'm happy. Yes. So, but yeah, I do like BRY97. It's an interesting yeast. I think it's time for us to go experience some esters in our noses and our faces. That means we're going to go have a beer in the pub. So please stick around. And when we come back, we're going to be talking about the beer life. Are you having trouble finding enough time to homebrew and give attention to the other important things in your life? Is your newest brewed IPA experiment coming at the expense of other obligations? Don't neglect partner or pet. Brew with the Genesis Fermenter. Learn why at genesisfermenter.com and find them wherever Brewcraft USA products are sold. Inspired by iconic Belgian beers perfect for summer, Y-East is releasing the three favorite Belgians, or Drie Favorita Belga, this quarter. 3463 Forbidden Fruit, 3538 Leuven Pale Ale, and 3822 Belgian Dark Ale are available now through the end of September. These original private culture collection strains are sought after for wit beers, Belgian pale ales, strong ales, blonde ales, Flanders, and more for good reason. The aromatics of fruit orchards and fields at harvest, quenching tartness, effervescent citrus, florals and spiciness, complexity and balance. Qualities like these are irresistible for pairing with fresh-picked fruit such as cherries, peaches, apricots, and raspberries. Find out more about which styles pair best with these strains at yeastlab.com. Welcome back. We're over here in the Experimental Brewing Pub at the corner of everywhere and nowhere in your town, wherever it happens to be. And we're having a couple beers. Uh, Drew, tell us what you're drinking today. I'm having, well, you guys are going to hear an interview from these folks before too long, but um, a friend of mine opened up a brewery in Long Beach called Trademark Brewing Company. And uh, Sterling, he's, he's got a mash filter, which is one of the things that we're going to be talking about in the episode. Uh, but he's also making... A lot of really good beer. You know how I, I usually say that like you, know, you treat breweries like restaurants. You don't really uh, pay attention to their overall quality in terms of what their execution profile is until they get like say six months in. You know, you got to give everybody some time to get to know their equipment. And Sterling's been open for three weeks, and he's already nailing the hell out of these beers. So the one that I'm having is one that I think proves the point. His on center Hellas. And it's 5%. It is soft. It's got that that multi thing that you want out of a Hellas. And also importantly, out of a Hellas, it's really super fast drinking. Like you turn around, the glass is gone. You're like, what happened? <laughs> and it's absolutely perfect for this time of year when it's, you know, approaching 100 degrees. 
You know, I need to I need to uh, concentrate more on learning to enjoy Hellas. I have never been able to get into it because it's just a bit on the sweet side for me. You know, I prefer a good German pills or something like that. But I I need to spend more time developing an appreciation for Hellas. Right? I would agree. <laughs> but in the meantime, as usual, I am drinking an IPA, one from a brewery that I love, Pelican Brewing, out on the coast of Oregon. Beautiful location, beautiful view there, and they make some killer beer. I'm having their Three Capes IPA. It's a seasonal. Comes in at uh, 6.1 ABV, 60 IBUs, made with two-row, white wheat, uh, some C120. I mean, I know that it's not trendy these days, but... I feel like an IPA has to have at least a little bit of crystal malt in it. The hops are Strata and Mosaic, and I have to admit that I am not real familiar with Strata hops yet. I've had them in a few beers. It seems like there was something that I had in Belgium that used them. But this beer has, you know, the fruit flavors. Uh, there's the passion fruit and strawberry. There's some grapefruit to it. Uh, and the, there's some really nice resiny pine notes to it, too, that balance off against all that fruit really nicely. Uh, I am loving this beer, and I'm looking forward uh, to tomorrow when it will be Saturday, and I can have my beer drinking weekend and have another one. There you go. I, I always like the weekend for that reason. Yeah, so, really, man. Now, I think it's uh, before we get started into the beer news, I think there's a couple things that we do have to share. If you missed our announcement last week, we appeared on Brad Smith's Beersmith podcast talking about, well, what el- what else? Our new book, Simple Homebrewing, and why Simple Homebrewing is not just for beginners. Right. Uh, and that's a point we need to keep making over and over and over. Simple is not for beginners. And uh, I just want to say thanks to Brad. Uh, we really appreciate it. It's always a lot of fun talking to you. So let us know when you want to do it again. Yes. And if you want to understand exactly why I have a face for radio and a voice for writing, uh, you can go over to Brad's YouTube channel and watch us actually talk. <laughs> yeah, right. Don't do that. You'll see why we do audio only. Yep. And then, of course, other places where you can find some stuff that we've done is I've taken over a column in Craft Beer and Brewing and just released the second issue that I'm in, all talking about how to make a hazy IPA with extract. Yes, that's right. A hazy IPA with extract. So go learn. And, of course, you can always find us in BYO Magazine now, too. That's right. We're uh, doing the techniques column in BYO. So if you just can't get enough of our stupidity, please check it out. Yep. And... Our first bit of news is, well, it's all about the social, right? Because everything's all about the social today. And it turns out that Facebook and Instagram, who are, of course, the monsters of the social media world, have announced a new policy restricting alcohol content, right? So less talking about alcohol. At least that's how everybody's reacting to it. And, of course, you know, never underestimate the Internet's ability to overreact to under being informing. <laughs> yeah, man, really. When I saw this announcement and I saw people's reactions to it, it's like, you guys haven't really read the policy, have you? Yeah, and so what their spokesperson has said is the new policy will prohibit all private sales, trades, and transfers, and gifting of alcohol and tobacco products on Facebook and Instagram. Uh, any brands that post content related to the sale or transfer of these products will have to restrict that content to adults 18 or older. So basically what it's really going after is all the in search of for trade type uh, beer groups and whiskey groups and secondary market groups. So I'll be really curious to see. I mean, obviously this stuff has been going on for far longer than Facebook and Instagram have been around. 
But I'll be really curious to see what that does to the secondary market since those are such big vectors. I guess I can say that I'm not worried about it because it doesn't affect me. No, but it is interesting to see, and I'm actually kind of surprised it took this long for them to get there. Yeah, me too. But I imagine that we have more than a few listeners who are active beer traders, and this is going to be interesting. I wonder if people will go raging back to Beer Advocate, where they still do a lot of beer trading there, or where where people are going to go now that Facebook's supposedly doing this. But I think the real important message to take away from this is Facebook is not saying you can't talk about booze on our site anymore. I mean, if they did, that would cut down an inordinate amount of their weekend traffic. What they're saying is that you can't talk about buying, selling, trading, second market, illegally you know, shipping booze around you know, in ways that is not completely kosher that people have just kind of ignored up until now. I can only see this affecting a very small subset of people. Yes, but they're a very dedicated small subset. <laughs> and vocal. Yes. So uh, there's that. Uh, the next piece is uh, Cantillon's uh, uh, Swansea beer uh, their, uh, and their Swansea Day uh, festival that they've been doing now for I don't know how long, uh, but for at least a little while. And basically what it is, it's a worldwide day celebrating you know can't, all things Cantillon, all things sort of really good beer. And Cantillon, of course, is the premier example, the the most traditional holder of the ways of making Lambic still left in Brussels, right? Yep. Uh, a lot of, a lot of producers are now outside of Brussels. And then there's a lot of people who are, you know, moaning about the fact that different producers are doing things that are not so traditional. And they're a group that are sort of hardcore. And I kind of feel like they're championed mostly by Cantillon and they have announced for the Zwanzi beer this year, it's going to be a smoked Lambic, which is a really interesting concept to me. And I'm not entirely certain I buy it. Yeah, that's just exactly what I was going to say. Yeah. So, because again, I always find that mixing smoked phenols with other flavors and other aromas is kind of challenging. And in this particular case, lambics are already particularly sort of a soupy mess of challenge. So putting those smoked phenols in with the with the lambic phenols and all that stuff, that's going to be a really interesting mix. But if anybody can pull it off, it will be Cantillon. Yep, that's true, man. Uh, unfortunately, I didn't have a chance to go there when I was in Brussels. The the people I was uh, touring with got in a day earlier, and they made it over there, and they came back raving about it. So oh, yeah. that's it's, as close as I got. It's a, it's a great. I mean, they they call it a brewing museum because it's so impractically small, but it is true, and it it is really nice. And also, you can get really. Uh, I know it sounds odd to say, but you can get really fresh lambic there. And I, I mean, it's the only time I've ever had a pharaoh that I thought was worth a damn because it was pharaoh made the traditional way, you know, like a fresh, a fresh lambic mixed with, you know, uh, cane sugar right there, or, uh, actually beet sugar meat uh, mixed with uh, beet sugar right there served in pitchers. And it was fantastic, which is exactly what it should be. But of course, nobody makes it that, that anyway. Um, and they've also announced that the Zwanzi Day will be on September 28th this year. And because of production issues that they ran into, uh, it will be smaller this year than it than it's been in the past. Um, they had like a few de- defective key kegs, so they can't send out as many kegs. So they put on their Facebook page a giant list of places that are still getting beer. And by the way, it's still a very long list. I mean, to the point that here in the U.S. there are 28 locations that are getting kegs for Zwanzi Day. So look at their list, see if there's one near you. I highly suggest that 
that you go and hang out and have some fun with us. And for me, I'm fortunate California is getting two kegs, or actually more than two kegs. I think we're getting four kegs. But Southern California is getting two kegs, one of which is relatively-ish near me, uh, down in Seal Beach at Beachwood Barbecue. So if it's nearby, go take a look. We'll include a link to the Facebook post so that you can find it. But yeah, go and enjoy. Yeah, I'd like to uh, hear your opinion of a smoked lambic. Yeah, um, I'd like to hear mine too. (laughs) Yeah. We'll be anxiously awaiting. There we go. And in our last little bit of news for this week, Northern Brewer has been sold. So if you guys remember a couple of years ago, Northern Brewer got bought by ZX Ventures. And ZX Ventures is the venture capital slash innovation arm, I guess is how you would call it, of Anheuser-Busch Interbev. Right? So a lot of folks kind of swore off ABI and a lot of folks swore off Northern Brewer as a result of that. But after I think it's been what, three, four years. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. That sounds about right. So after about three or four years, ZX Ventures sold Northern Brewer to another equity firm. So it's not in private ownership anymore. It's, it's in uh, equity firms uh, ownership, which of course always raises up interesting profit motives. But what it does mean is that if you've been avoiding Northern Brewer because of ABI's ownership, then you can totally go back and uh, go and buy it from them again. Uh, if that's your, if that's on your moral scope of things to do. <laughs> yeah. You know, um, and if I was going to be buying stuff again, that w- I would feel like uh, I could go there. I, try to get as much as I can from my local homebrew store, though. Absolutely. Although, I don't think anybody ever cracked the nut on what the heck ZX Ventures was trying to do by owning a homebrew shop, even if it was America's largest homebrew shop. Yeah, you know, and there have been all kinds of speculations about it. People going, well, you know, what they want to do is they want to, like, uh, wrap up the homebrew market so they have no competition or they're using it for research into the kind of things that homebrewers are interested in. And, uh, I don't know if you have a big enough sample size from just Northern Brewer to really glean any useful information like that. Yeah, that's the only one that makes any sense to me is like, hey, we want to get ahead of beer trends. We want to see what's see what's being popular. But then again, ABI has massive marketing research firms. So they, uh, it just seems weird to me that they would own a homebrew shop. But whatever, they don't own a homebrew shop anymore. They obviously decide to get out of that business. So there you go. Northern Brewer is free for those of you who are avoiding ABI and who don't necessarily have a local homebrew shop. But to Dane's point, support your local homebrew shop. Please do. And we'll be talking to a guy who runs a local homebrew shop pretty soon. Yep. A pair of dudes. The pair of dudes. That's right. Pair of right. dudes. Is that, and so if they were doctors, it'd be a paradox. And if they, if they were casino workers, they might have a paradise. That's right. Oh. oh, we could just go on forever, but we won't. Yeah. We'll spare you the rest of the puns because, well, we're brewers and we could go forever. But I think what we should do is we should finish these beers and then we should actually head over to the brewery. That sounds like a great idea. We got a bunch of stuff to talk about in the brewery today. So let's finish up our beers. You guys finish up your beer, unless you're driving. And we'll meet you over in the brewery. We'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by Brewers Publications, publisher of essential brewing books like How to Brew by John Palmer, Designing Great Beers by Ray Daniels, and their newest title, Simple Homebrewing, by expert homebrewers Denny Gunn and Drew Beecham. Visit BrewersPublications.com to shop these titles and more.
Getting accurate measurements of your beer is one of the keys to improving your brewing. The Pro Series Hydrometers from Brewing America will help you help your beer. These American-made NIST traceable hydrometers are accurate, easy to read, and the kits come with a cleaning brush and cloth and a borosilicate test flask that uses half the sample size of most flasks. That means less beer for testing and more beer for you. Brewing America is a small, family-owned business of husband and wife veterans, so when you buy a Brewing America hydrometer, you're not only getting a great piece of equipment, you're supporting the people who support America. Brewing America hydrometers are available on Amazon or at www.brewingamerica.com. The stainless steel is gleaming. The fermenters are burbling. Yeast burble, burble, is happily. Burble, burble, burble. Thank you. The yeast is happily munching away, producing that thing that we all love. That's right. We're making beer because we're in the brewery. And Denny, you have a topic to talk about today. That's well, it's inspired by a, a forum thread on the HA forum, but it really comes down to uh, how do we do know if we're done fermenting or if we're stuck. Yeah, you know, this came about because this is a question I'm hearing a lot lately. Uh, A guy in the AHA forum made a cream ale, uh, started off at a relatively high gravity for a cream ale, and it just didn't want to seem to go all the way down as low as he thought it would. Uh, So he was saying, oh, do I pitch more yeast? Do I make a starter with USO5 and put that in there? And, you know, I'm seeing a lot of people who either – don't know the difference between a stuck and finished fermentation or they can't figure out which one they've got or maybe have some interesting ideas, shall we say, about uh, how to restart what may be a stuck fermentation. So we thought we'd kind of discuss that because I think that we've probably both dealt with this before, huh? Yeah, and so let's talk about the difference between stuck and done, right? So... Done, to me, the way I usually will think about it is done means the available sugars that are there for fermentation have been consumed. There's nothing left to be done, right? And the beer is also, uh, well, and that's not always true. So as much sugar as needed to be consumed to be complete in fermentation and to have a complete and rounded uh, taste profile is when it's done. And the reason why I put that caveat in there is because, of course, I think both of you and I have had experiences where we've done stouts that have stopped at like 1030 and they come out tasting just fine. Yeah. One thing that I get a lot of times with my bourbon vanilla imperial porter is people go, oh, you know, my software is telling me this should ferment down to like 1014 and it's stopped at like 1030. That recipe is designed to have a final gravity in the 1026, 1028 area. So, first of all, you have to get it out of your head that if a fermentation has a high final gravity, 
that it still has fermentables left. It may very well not have fermentables. It may not be a yeast issue. I mean, it may, but people seem to overlook the fact that it could be a a word that doesn't have enough fermentables in it to keep it going. Uh, so the first thing you need to do is make sure that you pitch healthy and active yeast. Uh, that's one reason I like the shaken, not stirred method. Uh, I've heard a number of people say recently that since they switched over to it, they're seeing faster starts and more complete fermentation in their beer because they're not worried about cell count and decanting and uh, all that kind of stuff. They just pitch the healthy, active yeast in. Uh, you, you got to make sure that you make a fermentable wort. Uh, I think everybody knows that if you have 80% crystal malt, your wort's not going to be as fermentable as it would be otherwise. Uh, extremely dark malts are less fermentable. So, you know, if you're making a stout or something like that, you might have to take that into account. Um, any other things that can make a wort unfermentable you can think of? Uh, I'm trying to think. Well... Too high, uh, too high the uh, the mash temperature, right? So you get too many long chain sugars, too much right. starch, so incomplete conversion in the mash. Although, um, although depending on the malts you're using, you might have to get a really high mash temperature. Most uh, yeah. most of the big commercial American malts aren't as sensitive to that uh, as others. No, I mean modern malts typically will convert if you look at them cross-eyed. Yeah. Um, right. The other ones, of course, is if you're adding ingredients, uh, particularly now that we're in this day and age of uh, milkshake IPAs. If you're adding lactose or maltodextrin to the wort, you're going to have a high residual gravity on the basis of the fact that those things aren't fermentable. Right. So those are some other things to watch out for. Uh, by the way, I think we should also define one other thing. What What's is that? stuck? Yeah, right. And, you know, let's get into that a little bit here. I would say that if your gravity doesn't change over the course of, say, five days to a week, you have either a stuck fermentation or a finished fermentation. How do you know? Probably the best way to find out exactly what's going with your beer is to do a fast fermentation test, or sometimes called a forced fermentation test. What we want to do is figure out if that wort has anything left in it that's going to ferment at all, even under the most extreme conditions. So put some of that wort into a separate container, jar, whatever you like, Put a whole bunch of yeast in it. If you have a slurry, fine, put some of that in. Uh, I like to use bread yeast because I always have it around, and it's inexpensive, and uh, you can feel like you're not breaking the bank or ruining your next brew day by putting a whole bunch in. Let it sit there and ferment for a few days, and then take a gravity reading. The idea here is not to recreate the conditions of your beer or to make beer. The idea is to find out if there's any fermentation left in that wort. So if after a few days you're seeing the gravity go down, then you know that there are fermentables left and that you can work on trying to rescue the batch. You can't see me, but I'm doing air quotes there. Uh if the gravity does not go down, that beer is done, and there's no point in maybe ruining it by trying to take corrective measures that aren't going to work. Now, if you decide that it is a yeast issue and you want to pitch more yeast, remember you want to pitch a whole bunch of yeast. Uh, the uh, the technical term is a metric buttload. Uh, 
you need to get enough yeast in there to get that wort going again because you don't want to actually aerate the wort when you dump that extra yeast in. Uh, you don't want to take a chance that the yeast won't suck up any extra O2 that's in there. Uh, so instead of uh, counting on aeration and the oxygen to produce sterols for the yeast growth, you want to put in enough yeast so that it doesn't really need to grow. Uh, maybe, you know, four or five packs of dry yeast into your fermenter or the entire slurry from another batch or go to, go to a brew pub and get some from them. But remember, first you want to do that FFT to determine whether or not there's any point to even doing that. Yeah, and I was going to say, the biggest thing uh, that you also have to remember is that part of the reason why you need big, healthy, active yeast during this period is you're putting them into a hostile environment, right? This has apparently already been a hostile enough environment to mess up one generation of yeast, So, assuming that you did everything right. So get them big, get them healthy, get them active, and then get them in there. Yeah, definitely so. Uh, you know, it's, it's like... There's already alcohol in there. There's fermentables have been consumed. So that yeast needs to have a lot of power to it before you can expect it to really do anything. Anything, anything else we need to cover here? Well, I mean, I think the FFT is actually, well, for homebrewers, I think it's the one valid reason to keep a stir plate around. Yeah, that, that could be. Yeah. Well, because for me, the way I've always done the FFT is, you know, get a growler. Get some wort in there, or get the get the beer in there, and then pitch uh, pitch additional yeast in there, and then get it on a stir plate and let it go. Let it go at room temperature, right? Don't don't put it at proper fermentation temperatures or anything else, because the only thing that you're trying to find out, at least the way I do the FFT, the only thing you're trying to find out is what is the maximum fermentation uh, potential of that wort. And so I'll do that, and I'll I'll do this sometimes straight up from the start when I'm rocking a really big beer and something I've never done before. And I'll do it so that I put the the beer on the stir plate and let it fast ferment while I'm fermenting the rest of the batch, just so I have an idea, like, when I get to the end of that batch, like, let's say I go and I look at my FFT sample, and my FFT sample is reading, say, 1010. If I go and I pull wort when the yeast has crashed out and the wort is reading 1020, then I can pretty well suspect I've got an issue. If I instead pull the wort and it's coming out, say, at you know, 10, 12, 10, 14, then I have to kind of step, stop, step back and consider, okay, this is probably done. And conversely, if you're doing a really big beer, say like you're doing one of those monster barley wines or you're doing like my Falcon's Claws, if you do an FFT with that and the FFT stops at you know, 10, 25, 10, 30, then when the ferment of the big beer is done and it comes at, say, 10, 35, 10, 40, then that tells me, okay, I've probably gone about as far as I can reasonably go. Yeah, that's true, man. Uh, you know, I always have to kind of chuckle when I see somebody who made a, a beer with a, a gravity over 100, and it finishes, uh, say, at, at 10.25, 10.30, and they're going, oh, I'm trying to get it down to 10.10. It's like, no, dude, it's where it's supposed to be. Yeah, I mean, the only person who can, I think, really reliably fly blind when you're going over 1,100 without having to you know, put up instruments is our good buddy Fred, who people heard on the HomebrewCon <laughs> podcast. Really? So, yeah, there's a, there's another way to use an FFT. Don't just don't just think of the FFT as a way to diagnose a problem that you're that you think you're having. You know, use the FFT sometimes as a way to help you understand 
when you get to the end if you have a problem. Okay, well, I think I think that that pretty much covers it. If you have any questions about this, please shoot us an email uh, to podcast at experimentalbrew.com, and we'll be happy to uh, to talk about it some more, to answer your questions. Uh, the, the thing to remember is that a stuck fermentation probably isn't as common as a lot of people think it is, huh? No, not particularly with uh, today's emphasis on healthy yeast. If you're following good healthy yeast practices – um, you're probably going to be okay. Yeah. I'm, and again, if you if you have other tactics that that you use an FFT for, or if you have other simple tests that you want us to talk about or suggest for us to talk about, you know, don't forget drop those in the line too. There are a couple of other simple lab tests that we can talk about that we think are, you know, kind of important for both pros and for homebrewers. Right. At all sizes. Yep. Yep. All right. I think it's time for us to go lounge. I'm done being in the brewery. <laughs> okay, now it's getting hot in here from the burners going anyway. We're going to head over to the lounge, sit down and relax, and listen to John Lapola and Douglas Amport of Bitter and Esters in New York talk about what it's like running the only homebrew shop in New York City. Stick around. We're going to be right back. Mecca Grade Estate Malt is a craft malt house owned and operated by the Klon family on their beautiful Central Oregon high desert farm. Their eighth generation Oregon farming family grows and malts all of their own specialty grain, creating malts that are rare, remarkable, and bursting with flavor. Malt is the foundation of your beer, so why settle? The best beers deserve Mecca Grade. For more information, please visit MeccaGrade.com. When I'm done brewing, I want to be done brewing, not waiting around for my work to cool. With the Hydra, the Corny Pillar, and the other great chillers from Jaded, I can be done when I'm done. No more waiting 20 minutes for the work to cool enough to add Whirlpool hops. No more messing with cleaning and sanitizing counterflow or plate chillers. With the super fast immersion chillers from Jaded, you can chill your word in minutes without all the hassle. Jaded chillers aren't just works of art. They're the fastest, most effective chillers you can buy. Check them out at jadedbrewing.com. Welcome to the lounge. Put on your smoking jacket, grab yourself a beverage, unless you're driving, and uh, we're going to hear a conversation between Drew and guys who run Bitter and Esters in New York City. Yeah, and just to set the context for this, this conversation happened at HomebrewCon, and what I didn't know at the time, because, uh, oops, Doug and, uh, Doug and John were and their shop, Bitters and Esters, we're up for the Homebrew Shop of the Year Award at the AHA. This is a, a relatively new award that the AHA has put together. It's two or three years old, so not very old at all. And the whole idea is recognize the best homebrew shops in America, and people nominate their homebrew shop. And so, yeah, John and Doug have the distinct calling card, advantage, disadvantage of being the only homebrew shop in all of New York City. And it was really interesting. This was actually, this started off as a, a thing where they asked if they could interview me for their podcast, which they've just now launched called See What You Can Brew. 
And so you'll also be hearing a version of this conversation probably happen over there on their podcast. And so what was originally supposed to be them interviewing me, well, it kind of turned into us interviewing each other. (laughs) Yeah, I would call it a conversation more than an interview. Sit back and let's hear a little bit from John and Doug about what it's like to run a homebrew shop in New York. Particularly, how is it to run a homebrew shop in this day and age where so many people are running to online deals and, ooh, I can get something cheaper off of Amazon? And you know, particularly when you're in a big, expensive city. So, fascinating conversation. And then, of course, the day after we taped this, they ended up winning the HA Homebrew Shop of the Year Award. You know what? So, uh, I was one of the people who got to uh, judge that, and they were the highest rated shop that I judged. I, I can imagine. They, they sound pretty rad. And... Listeners, you'll be able to find out why they sound so red. That's right. So sit back, relax, and here's Drew and the guys from Bitter and Esters. There's always another batch of beer. <laughs> There's always another batch of beer. There's always something else to record. There's always something else to film. But it's not going to be that case if you're not going to actually go do it. And I think that's one of the points that I was making in my talk yesterday. It's one of the points of the book, mm-hmm. Simple Home Brewing. It's like, you know, the best way to become a better brewer is to brew more often. You know, as homebrew shop owners, we completely agree with that. <laughs> I tell people this all the time. I'm like, you know what? Because, you know, it's it, – I don't want to say cute, but what uh, we get a lot is, um, oh, I want to make this perfect beer as my first beer. Like, oh, and, I, and it's like, well, you know, just make the beer. You'll There'll be more beer yeah. to make. Like, you're, if you are getting into this hobby to make one beer, it's <laughs> – It's I, an expensive beer. It's yeah, expensive and what kind beer. of drinker are you anyway? You know. Well, okay. So let's let's shout it out to everybody uh, who we are. So sure. I'm Drew, Drew Beecham, host of Experimental Brewing, and you guys are? I'm John LaPola. I'm co-owner of Bitter and Esters and soon-to-be host of uh, See What You Can Brew, or I guess host of See What You Can Brew, but we haven't – you would be our first interview. This is our first take, so congratulations. Hey, go me. And I'm Douglas Ampor. I'm said co-owner slash co-host. <laughs> There we go. And Bitter Nesters is in New York, right? Yeah, in Brooklyn. In Brooklyn. There we go. Yeah. So what is it like running a shop in Brooklyn? Very tight, very small. We don't have a lot of space, and uh, neither do our homebrewers. Well, we're the only homebrew shop in all five boroughs, which is a crazy thing. Um, so it's basically what's it like running a homebrew shop in one of the largest cities on in the world. Um, and it's awesome. You know, it's, there's so many different people, and they're, they're all pretty passionate. I mean, the cool thing is that if you live in Brooklyn or if you live in New York City, you're you're compromising a lot in space mm-hmm. and money and all this stuff. And the fact that uh, they are willing to brew beer means that they are willing to be passionate about it right away. It's, it's We don't get a lot of um, people who are just... Uh, what do they call them? We don't uh, get casual a lot of people to. Bystanders. Yeah. You know, they're they're serious brewers and they make really good beer and they they, they continue with it. I'm I'm always very impressed by the the beer that we get mm-hmm. from our brewers. Well, and I think the thing that, whenever I think of New York and home brewing, of course, obviously I'll always think of Mary. Yes, you will. Yeah, because Mary Mary is the queen of fermentation of New York. Yes. And. I think it was with her and talking with her was like the first time I really realized why small batch brewing mattered, you know, because of like what you're talking about, the space considerations that, that happen there in New York and the fact that, yeah, if you're going to be a home brewer in a city like that where you are living in a tiny little apartment, you know, yeah, you are sacrificing in order to make sure that you have that beer. Mm-hmm. So it was like, that was, a, I think the, the conversations I had with her were the first time I ever really struck me as like, oh yeah, okay, there's a really good reason to do this. 
Well, I remember the first time we came to a HomebrewCon and the other shop owners were like, oh, these one-gallon kits, these one-gallon kits will never catch on. They're never really a thing. We have converted all of our recipes to one-gallon kits because it's a great way for people to start. Mm-hmm. It's a great way to get into it and brew. You can brew four batches in the same amount of space that you can brew one five-gallon batch. True. And, I mean, we do one-gallon, two-and-a-half-gallon also, which depending on your apartment, that's that's something you can get away with and you get a case of beer. I, I try to push people up a little bit. I'm mm-hmm. like, look, you know, that's that footprint's not that bad um and then a lot of people do five gallons i one of our customers uh he said to his husband um do you mind if i turn the living room uh coffee table into a kegerator and he was like half asleep he was like yeah sure and he went and did it (laughs) and that's the kind of thing you see you go into these uh, people's apartments and there'll, there'll be like taps coming out of the couch and stuff like they make it work especially when they get really really passionate about it. It's, it's pretty fun. New York has always uh, encouraged creative solutions. Yeah, like, definitely. I, I, I remember staying at a friend's apartment once and it was the shower was in the kitchen uh-huh. and drained into the washing machine <laughs> which was right next to the clothes washer which was this tea tiny little thing. Like they packed all the plumbing into like three square feet. And it works. And it works. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it probably had a brew kettle coming out of that too. You know? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> So what do you guys what do you guys think are the challenges for modern homebrewers? Just not in in a big city like New York, but you know, for modern homebrewers, it seems like things have shifted. It feels like. What do you well, think? Well, I mean, that? I think that's a really big question. The challenges for modern homebrewers. I, you know, after talking to people who had taken your seminar at this, mm-hmm. I, I realized that one of the one of the biggest challenges is feeling like left behind by all the all the media, all the technology, all the great stuff that's out there, feeling like you can't catch up. Um, we were just talking about you know people coming into the brew shop and wanting to make the most amazing mm-hmm. complex beer on their first beer and spending three or four hundred dollars on this first beer, and you don't need to. Mm-hmm. You don't need to, just doing what you want to do, like remembering that, knowing that, and then doing it well. I think is probably one of the biggest things I see people having challenges with right now. It's also this the intimidation part it is still as as much as we're homebrewers and we know how to do it, and it's actually pretty easy. You know, it's not a, a hard mm-hmm. thing. It's when uh, we get a lot of people coming in and being like, you can, still saying, you can make your own beer. Mm-hmm. And it's like, yeah, no, you can. You know, it's there's no question about it. So we we teach a lot of classes for that reason because of the fact that uh, we want to demystify things. And just to give you a shout-out, I read your article in Zymergy. I didn't read the book yet, but I read the article in Zymergy, and I was like, oh, the water part here is what I'm trying to say in my talk, which I just gave, mm-hmm. uh, in water. And so I kind of glommed. To standing room only, by the way. Huh? To standing room only. Yeah, to standing room only. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they were. Uh, they had tickets on StubHub for like 600 bucks just to get in there. Dude, I heard the bootlegs are going to be awesome. Yeah, they're going to be great. <laughs> it's going to be a remix. Um, but I did – I said, oh, okay, like – you guys, the article was just on water, and I said, "Oh, this is this is what I'm trying to do. This mm-hmm. is because the, uh, the the end point was difficult for me. It was kind of like, well, where where do I want people to end up? Um, and so you, I just want to thank you. I, 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 you gave that kind of idea, and I was able to put the, the whole talk into perspective. That's uh, awesome. After reading that article, I was like, oh, okay, this this is true. Because um, you say, what's the, the challenges? The challenges are, are making the beer." Mm-hmm. And making the best beer—that's what—that's uh, the challenge for everybody, right? In yeah, the, and, and, world, and, and I think it's world. still just 
I mean, I tell people I make beer, and, and as you said, you know, once you've started doing it, you understand the process, and you, you understand it's kind of easy. You know, it's got some weird steps to it, but there's nothing like that should make your brain freeze. But it is that intimidation factor that happens. It is that that overcomplication. I was just talking with uh, Palmer uh, earlier this morning with another fellow from Columbia, and, and we were. We were talking about the fact that like Palmer and I are on like opposite ends of the spectrum in terms of the books, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, yeah, which is great. Yeah, Palmer's all very technical, which is awesome. It's something that I've embraced over the course of my life. But I've gotten to the point now where all I want to do is pare it down to what is the bare minimum that I need to do. And in a lot of ways, that's the lesson that a lot of new homebrewers need to learn. Actually, it's the lesson I think a lot of even experienced homebrewers need to learn. Because to me, the biggest thing I have a problem with is not having enough time to brew. Mm, mm-hmm. you know, I don't it, like, and it's that it, it, for me the intimidation now is not the process; it's going out to the garage and starting the whole thing. It's right. you know, it's like <laughs> taking that first step. Oh yeah, it, it's just like we were talking about earlier. You know, you have to go out there and do it. You know, right. and so for me, like everything about the brewing simple idea was about trying to remove as much inertial blockers from brewing for me as possible. So like how do how do I stop trying to obsess over water chemistry, make it simple so that I can start brewing? You know, how do how do I make it so that I mean like the thing that happens to me all the time is I'll go out to the garage, roll up the door, go, Ah crap, I gotta clean all this stuff. <laughs> you know? I think I'll go yeah. do the grocery shopping instead. Right, yeah. And and so like I've started using yeast starters, for instance, as the ticking time bomb, right. the gun to my head to say, hey, listen, you're, you put those little yeasties to work. Now you got to actually really put them to work. You owe them the wart. <laughs> you, know? you know what? Why bother making the yeast starter if you're not going to make the beer, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, what, I'm going to waste you know, $7 of, on a pack of yeast to, you know, to what? To do nothing? To clean your garage? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, it's funny that... Uh, when they were looking for speakers for Homebrew Con, um, I've been trying to write a water class for the store for a really long time, and I, I just kept getting blocked and blocked and blocked. So I said, yes, I'm going to do a water class for, for Homebrew Con. I'm going to do a talk, and I, I didn't know if I was going to be accepted. And then when I was, I was like, oh, crap. Yep. I actually have to do this now. And it's been great. It, it forced me into that situation, same thing, to finally finish. Doug is very happy, though, Doug. I'm very happy. Yeah, it's, he's been yelling at me about Because we have a bunch of classes. We have a yeast class. We have a hops class. We have uh, just an uh, all-grain class and beginning class. So those those are done, but the one the one thing that wasn't done was water. There you go. And, uh, for, for a homebrew shop, you have a lot of class. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Sorry. we're in New Thank York. <laughs> classy place. <laughs> Well, but it is true. Deadlines are a hell of a motivator. Yeah, they are. Totally. You know, I'm convinced that no book ever actually gets written without a deadline. Well, I actually, I actually wanted to ask you about that because, I mean, I totally understand your, all these impediments to starting the brewing process. What, what else really made you want to put it into a book? I'm an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. No, Fair enough. I, I mean, somewhere along the lines, I discovered that I really like to be the smartest person in the room. Um, that may be the effect of going to MIT. I don't know. It's very easy right now. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Trust me. I, I, I will always think I'm the smartest person in the room, even if I'm not. But no, um, no. for me, what it really came down to was 
looking at all this stuff, and I have a real passion for sharing this. Like, I come from a whole line of teachers and college professors and librarians and all that sort of stuff. Like, that books are just a part of my life, and they have been forever. And and I have this passion for sharing all the stuff that I do on a brew day. I have this. I'm obviously idiotic enough to do a weekly podcast. And it was just like, thank, thank you for the encouragement on that. Hey, yeah. Trust me, it's fun, <laughs> mostly. But because of that, it just came down to the fact, like, both Denny and I were looking at the stuff that we're doing and realizing, man, people are making this way too hard. Way, way too hard. You know, and it's driving people nuts. So let's step back. Let's go back to sort of first principles, right? You know, bring in the Marcus Aurelius for a moment. You know, what are our first principles here? And then and then do that. And it was just we looked at it and at the moment in the market there wasn't a book there wasn't a book that felt like it was in that same space. Right? You either have on the one side you know, very, very simplified uh, homebrewing books. You know, even like one of the ones I wrote, uh, the Everything Homebrewing book. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, Charlie's uh, Joy of Homebrewing. Right, which is very much on the hey, don't worry about it, right? You know, relax, don't worry, have, have homebrewing. Yeah, yeah. And was, so we took some of that energy and tried to find the energy between that and you know, sort of like that super screwball tight thing out of how to brew mm-hmm. and water and like some of the very heavy technical books that are out there, and try and find like the nice middle ground. Like I used to study Aikido uh, years ago, and and one of the one of the philosophies of the, uh, Aikido was the whole idea was oh well this was born because you know you recognize that all martial artists you know tend to move towards certain moves and tactics when as they become more veteran and more trained. So let's just cut out all that and just start there, right? Mm-hmm. That, that, that's what I was taught when I was doing Aikido classes, and it's very much the same way here with simple homebrewing. Well, like, that and less is more. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Always. Hmm. Yeah, that's, I mean, we, we try that in the shop. We, um, we That's one of our goals, uh, uh, especially for beginning people, is to uh, let them know this is a hobby. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, let's say you want to do needlepoint or something. You don't get intimidated by it. You know, like, I want to start needlepoint, but, oh, What's going to happen? I'll stab myself. Oh, no, I you know? might mess it up. I might mess it up. Yeah, right? So mm-hmm. it's like it's a hobby, uh, and that's Charlie, right? Mm-hmm. Relax, don't worry. Uh, and then I'd like to point out that it's a hobby that gives you beer, mm-hmm. so you should love that hobby if you love beer, so that's the next thing that you really want to do. And then we um, we teach this beginning class where we just say, look, it's not that big a deal. It's just you don't – I don't know where you heard that this was had to be such a big deal. It's really not. Well, you're, I mean, I- you're making food already, right? So – I, I completely understand that. I mean, that's how I started homebrewing, originally winemaking, but we, I went on the internet, I read all the books, I, got, I just got inside my head, I got so much information, and all you have to do is crush grapes and put them in a bucket. <laughs> like, I mean, it, but if I, I was like, oh, what about the chemicals and the equipment, and I wanted to spend hundreds of dollars balance the before, acid, and balance the acid, yeah, and then do all this measurement. and right, got to get the titratable acidity. Yeah, I, yeah. It, exactly, titrating, I from college, so bad. Oh, yeah. Um, and, but I had all these impediments in my way, and it was just myself. Mm-hmm. It was just because all I had to do was have somebody say, oh, no, it's not that bad. You crush the grapes, you put them in the bucket, you sulfate them, and there you go. You're done. Get out of your way, Doug. Yeah, well, exactly. Well, uh, but I mean, I started brewing in 99, and I got my first homebrew kit in March of 99, and Within a month, I think I had half the books that were in the BP library. <laughs> and That's cool. I mean, yeah, you know, but, if you love learning. Oh yeah, but I mean, again, nerd, yeah, right. like a super nerd, and and yeah, I just I I went and I 
just stuffing my head full of stuff. And I had the same intimidation about all grain brewing. Mm. You know, okay, like, oh, I got to do this stuff to match the water flow in and out and what's my pH and all this. And finally, yeah, the thing that got me over the hump was I did a all grain class at my shop uh, run by my club and, you know, sat around and realized, oh, this is really two hours worth of work crammed into eight hours. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Pretty much. That's it. It's a lot of it's a lot of cleaning and drinking. You yeah. Know? Yeah. But like one, uh, once once I had that exposure, it was like, oh, okay, I can totally do this. And went out and made a little false bottom for my pot. And you know, Bob's your uncle. Nowadays, uh, nowadays brewers have things like a uh, brew in a bag. Brew in a bag. I mean, amazing. It, that simplifies so much. It's bananas. Yeah, my uh, my first soil grain. I actually started brewing in '92, so I've been brewing a long time. And all I had was. Um, uh, complete joy of home brewing, mm-hmm. and, and in a kitchen in Pennsylvania. And in that, he has a, like this smash ton where you drill holes yep. into a bucket, and then you have another bucket underneath it. And I was the, doing the goal extract. zap pap. Was it called the zap pap lauder ton? Zap pap lauder ton, <laughs> right? That's Charlie for you. And um, so I, uh, you know, I did a bunch of extract brewing. Finding ingredients was in, insanely difficult in rural Pennsylvania, but I did it. And I was like, oh, I can't do this all, all grain. It's, nothing's going to happen. It, it, this enzymatic conversion. I, I, who, who do I think I am? God. And uh, I did it, and I tested uh, my uh, hydrometer. I tested my gravity. I was like, oh, my God, this converted. This is a thing. Like, it worked with that stupid thing. Mm-hmm. And I was thrilled. I was like, this is going to be the best beer in the world. Yeah. And I put it into my uh, fermenter, and I ferment it, and it's great. And I take a thief of it, and it's great. And I'm ready to bottle it. And I go to uh, siphon it into my bottling bucket, and there's a little bit of dirt in my tube. Mm. I'm like, ah, I bleached it. should be fine. Screwed the entire batch up. Fine. Just knocked knocked the wind out of my sails. I was like, <laughs> oh, that's right. Microorganisms rule. Yeah. yeah, yeah we, we, we are just temporary inhabitants on a, on a planet full of gooey organisms. That's it. Well, but, it, I mean, even that Zappap water ton, which, uh, listeners, if you haven't seen one of those, it is literally two plastic buckets put together, and one of them, like, you drive a hot nail through it a bunch of different places in the bottom <laughs> right. to make a, a filter screen. I mean, that's all it is. I had, the guy who taught me how to do all-grain brewing, he used one of those at his home setup, and he brewed uh, a beer that we talked about on the podcast before on the Brew Files uh, called Dugweiser, and it was his clone of Budweiser. And he was good friends with the brewmaster at the Van Nuys Budweiser plant at the time. And he, I'm not kidding, made this thing with this two plastic bucket set up and a pot on his stove, bottled it up, sent it to them, and they sent it to St. Louis to go through the technical evaluation they do for Budweiser. (laughs) Because, again, uh, if you don't know this, listeners, Bud takes beer from all of their, their plants around the country and actually around the world and ships those beers into St. Louis to go through full chemical and sensory analysis to verify that everything's on point. With that stupid two-plastic bucket system, he landed within 1% of the Budweiser technical spec. <laughs> and then Budweiser changed to giant plastic buckets after that. Exactly. <laughs> like, yeah, it revolutionized the industry. <laughs> but uh, Yeah, you can do it. Yeah, I mean, and in the, the talk, we have a picture of, you know, these grinding stones and these uh, grinding holes that are some of the earliest evidence that we have for you know, uh, flour making and brewing, and they're from 15,000 years ago in the Zagros Mountains in Iran. We've been doing this for a very, very long time. 
well before any of us even knew that there were things like microorganisms or optimum mash ton, uh, mash ton temperatures and pHs. Right. Yeah. It's not that hard, people. Get there and do it. Well, in the all-grain class, you know, I give a lot of information. I talk about the different enzymes, and I talk about how to manipulate them and just what's happening. I talk about malt modification. But I always say you don't need to know any of this stuff. If you can add hot water to grain, if you can follow a recipe, you will do this. The, the malt is so modified nowadays that if you stare at them long enough, they turn to sugar. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, you really, you guys are in the best time for home brewing, especially. I mean, the sanitation's ridiculously easy. Again, when I started, it was bleach, and bleach is just the worst sanitizer. I mean, works, but it just stinks, mm-hmm. and it's hard to rinse. And um, the hops I used to get, I, I don't even know what they were. You know, these gray things. Um, and oh, well, hey, at least they were gray, not yellow. Right. <laughs> they might have been yellow. I have no idea. But, you know, now, like, everything the breweries get, the home brewers get. Mm-hmm. And so the, uh, some of the best beers I've had have been from home brewers. They, they, can, they can really focus uh, on their little batches and make kick-ass beers. So it's a, it's a great time to be a home brewer. There you go. And a, and a great time to uh, remember to patronize your local home brewer shop. <laughs> yes, I completely agree with that. So, well, and actually, uh, speaking of that, because I mean, th- there's all the stuff going on in the retail market where you know things are dicey. I mean, you guys are obviously in a special location, being yeah. the one store in, in the five boroughs. But what do you what do you guys see for homebrew shops out there as like the most important thing they can do for their customers and for themselves? Make it a fun place to be, and I mean that's that's the only way to survive in oh, a retail market. Community. You focus on your community. Mm-hmm. Help people brew better beer. I mean, because anybody can go on Amazon and get something cheap. Mm-hmm. That's it's just it's there. You can't compete on price for any reason with anyone. So the only thing you have is the people around you. I mean, we're we're super super lucky in Brooklyn because we've got eight million people surrounding us. But the the community members from day one, our our focus was to bring people in, teach them how to make beer, and I, I mean, I go rock climbing with some people that I originally came into my store. They don't even brew beer anymore. I'm just their friends. Like, mm-hmm. this is my community. This is our community. And you have to take care of it. Otherwise, they won't take care of you. We do a monthly beer swap where the homebrewers yeah. come in. So it's like a, a club but without any rules. Mm-hmm. Uh, so people come in, and we can get 40, 45 people come in. We all share beer, and they, they love it. And we go out for beers afterwards. It's First Sorry. Wednesday of every month. A little debaucherous. The first Thursday is usually difficult on me, but the first <laughs> Wednesday. Um, and a homebrew club started out of our store, the Bruminaries, which I'd like to shout out. I like, And they're big. They're the biggest homebrew club in uh, New, New York. York City, it's like yeah. two, 200 strong, and, that, and that's pretty big mm-hmm. for our little thing that's going on there. Um, another thing, if I'm talking to homebrew shop owners, because I did give a talk in Baltimore about just uh, community and homebrew, is uh, d- diversifying what you do. Um, making sure you have classes, making sure you sell things that people are looking for. I mean, we carry SodaStream. That that really helps with the bottom line for mm-hmm. us, you know. Uh, we're also a brew on premises, so mm-hmm. that that, hel- that helps. Not all uh, shops can do that, mm-hmm. but uh, we're we're able to do that. And the cool thing about that is that people who just want to brew beer but don't want to do all the things, they just want to be kind of have their hand held and get beer at the end. They come in. And they do it, so uh, we're able to. That's a really helpful for us as far as revenue stream. If we want to start talking about like shop stuff, but I mean those classes too. I think the classes are critical for yeah. anybody who's who's out there trying to, you know, sell homebrew supplies. Be- because and the, the great thing about our classes is people come to our classes not to learn how to homebrew. 
they come to our classes because they're a fun thing to do on a Thursday night or a Saturday afternoon. Mm-hmm. And you have a beer, you, you learn about beer, maybe you can go talk, go sit at the bar and brag to your friends about what IBUs are, and you're super excited about it. And maybe we sell three kits in a class of 14 people, mm-hmm. which is great. That's it's a great weekend because that's yeah. three new customers that maybe they knew about homebrewing and they wanted to do it when they came in. A lot of them don't. They mm-hmm. come in and they're like, oh, I can do this. This is awesome. The intimidate, All the intimidation goes away. They think beer is made in a factory, and now they know they can make it at home. They walk out with a kit. I'd say at least 75% of those people we see again. It's it's fantastic. Yeah. Yeah, we follow up a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's that's one, Not that we follow up, but we're available. Uh, that's another thing. Is we're available like 24-7 for the customers. Our cell phone is on our business yeah, card. We put our cell yeah. phones on the business card. Wow. It's, yeah, it's pretty hardcore. <laughs> But, it's you know, people love it, and not, not a lot of people take advantage of that. It's not like I'm right. getting calls at 3 in the morning saying, what are you wearing? Um, <laughs> I got a call at 11 o'clock yesterday. You did? Yeah, to, somebody was having a foamy keg issue. Yeah, so yeah, yeah I, mean, I mean, that sort of thing, <laughs> that, that, that's above and beyond, but it's great. I like They know that we're there for them. We're like the nucleus, and that's of, of the homebrew mm-hmm. world. And the, the other cool thing about New York City is that the, the – Brewery world has exploded. So that uh, when we first started uh, eight years ago, there was four breweries mm-hmm. in New York City, and now there's over 40, and they're all really good. And they they they're good because of the same reason why the homebrewers are homebrewing is that if they're going to do it, they better do it right. You know, they, they just they're going to dump a lot of money into this project. It can't be a vanity project. They have to make sure that they stay in business and make good beer. Mm-hmm. And we're seeing great beer come out of New York, and the homebrew community. Um, are craft brew drinkers, so that these craft breweries they are uh, very much courting the homebrew community. So it's it, it it's all kind of synergistic. It's nice. Hmm. Uh, the, what's happening? That's cool. Yeah. Yeah. Well, but I mean, I, again, I mean, I think the fact that you guys are are doing those classes, and yeah, you know, even if the only thing that you're doing is providing the knowledge and not necessarily making new new homebrewers out of it. Yeah, you are building people who are tied to your shop. Mm-hmm. You're building people who who feel better connected with the idea of beer to begin with you know like i knew i i my knowledge about beer became many 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 more times greater just because i started homebrewing sure. and because i also had all that exposure so now under I, I kind of understood things although i i will take the moment to caution and remind people hey uh homebrewers don't be a jerk when you go to a brewery <laughs> and pretend like you know everything about oh, brewing. definitely not no <laughs> i've seen I, i've seen that way too many times you, you get the 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 subject matter expert who walks into the brewery and is like, burr, 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 and you're like, seriously, chill. Yeah, yeah. It's all right to ask questions, but don't give answers, sort of thing, right? You know, <laughs> like the 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 brewers if they're there and you want to say, hey, what's, how do you treat your water? They'll be like, yeah, I'll tell you. But if you say you should treat your water this way, they're gonna be like, you know, I'm helping your own brewery. Yeah. Right? <laughs> There's a reason why a lot of the professional brewers can be grumpy about certain home brewers. Yeah. No, our, uh, New York. They're, Everyone's pretty cool. cool. And it's because a lot of these pros were homebrewers. We, yeah, we know them through the through the. I mean, half of them used to shop with us. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, and I think, like, even over in L.A., like, yeah, like half the brewers I know were formerly a member of the, the Falcons or the East Siders or Pacific Gravity, you know, like one of the homebrew clubs in the area is like going, yeah, I remember when you, when you were working on your kitchen stove. <laughs> I remember that terrible beer you brought in. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's Pepperidge uh, Farms remembers. Yeah, well, they they all remember too. I mean, and that's I think that's why they. 
I think that's why, at least in New York, people are people court homebrewers. People work with each other. Like, mm-hmm. you know, if a brewery runs out of something, they come to us. And if we don't have something, oftentimes I've I've sent people to other breweries. I've like called up uh, KCBC and asked them if they had something and sent another brewery over there and being like, hey, they've got this. You can help them out. And they all remember their mistakes and their problems and their tough times. Mm-hmm. And they are so happy to help. I mean, yeah. I mean, we even called called a brewery the other day or emailed a brewery the other day and we're just like hey I have a customer they want to make clone this beer can you give us some pointers they just threw me a brew sheet they just here's here's the entire recipe yeah it's fantastic community well that's one of the things I do like in the beer world when the when the beer world is working like I feel like the beer world should work you know, we're not in the middle of like social media hell (laughs) um, and bad marketing ideas 101 um when the brew community is working the way I feel, I feel like it, it works in my head. It's a wonderful thing. You know? um, because, I mean, let's face it, we're all just sitting around and enjoying a beer. Right. Yeah. And trying it's, to stay alive. Yeah. <laughs> staying, that's, that's how I look at it. Staying alive, one pint at a time. Right. <laughs> one pint at a time. I like that. That's a t-shirt. That's a t-shirt. <laughs> well, there you go. I think we've generated a good t-shirt idea. We generate some uh, some love for homebrew, and we've we've tried to figure out some of the things that why people are overthinking things and why they need to stop overthinking things, and how we can make it much more friendly to people. Because again, I mean, I think the classes are an incredibly important thing as long as, whenever you have active participation. Because remember, brewing for centuries was a handed down trade. Yeah. You, know, you apprenticed as a brewer, and there's a good reason for it because that's the best way to learn it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So again. Get out there. Go do it. And go support your local homebrew shop. Agreed. Thank you so much, Drew. Hey, thanks, Drew. Thanks for having us, man. Man, I can't believe those guys are the only homebrew shop in a place like New York City. I can. Have you seen what the rent's like? (laughs) Okay. Well, there's that point. Yeah. uh, Homebrew shops are not exactly uh, uh, high-profit margin retail. But what I really dig is how focused they are, and I also think how rightfully focused they are, on the idea of building a strong community to be able to then support the shop. And to tell the truth, that's why they scored so well in the voting for Homebrew Shop of the Year, because of their community commitment. Yeah, so it's really impressive. That's really hard work to keep a a store running in a place like New York. And the fact that they're able to do it and do it with such a high, well, such a high margin of quality, really speaks to just how much they're doing there at that shop. So, if you're in New York City at all, or if you're in anywhere in the area, maybe uh, consider stopping by and, and saying hi and tell them that you heard about them here. That about wraps up the lounge here, so I think it's time to get busy wrapping up the show. We're going to go do some questions and answers. We've got a quick tip and a couple something others that we're going to do real quick. So stick around, and we'll be right back after these messages. Yakima Chief Hops is a 100% grower-owned global hop supplier located in the Pacific Northwest with a mission to connect family hop farms to the world's finest brewers. Yakima Chief's cryo hops represent the most innovative technology in hop processing, using a patent-pending cryogenic separation process which preserves the components of each hop fraction. Cryo hops pellets provide intense hop flavor and aroma, reduced vegetal flavors, and increased yield. Available now to commercial and home brewers. Learn more at yakimachief.com.
back. It's about time to wrap this baby up so we can all get on with our day. We're going to start with some questions and what we have for answers. The first one comes from Justin Vellner in the Czech Republic, which is someplace I'm dying to go visit one of these days. Justin writes, I'm just now moving into a situation where I can control fermentation temperature. Many homebrewers have said it's the single most dramatic change that contributed positively to their brews. I also was able to procure a mill, so that will be added to my repertoire as well. Here are my three questions, and we'll read them here before we get into answering. What are some best practices for temperature-controlled fermentation? I'm talking about steps you take in almost all brews, regardless of yeast type. Second question is, what other changes besides temperature control and water chemistry, pretty sure you'd mention that, do you recommend that contributed positively to your brewing process? And the third question is, what are each of your desert island beers? Oh, man, I always hate trying to think about that. Okay. See, that, that one's easy for me. <laughs> yeah, really. Okay, so what we're going to do is we're going to go through each one of these questions, and Drew and I will each give you uh, our answers to it. So, first question, what are some best practices for temperature-controlled fermentation? And, you know, just real briefly in terms of equipment, uh, I started off doing nothing. I moved into putting the schmetter in a large tub of water where I could add ice packs or an aquarium heater, depending on if I needed to cool it down or warm it up. Uh, I moved on to a chest freezer after that. Uh, I started using a brew jacket, Immersion Pro, a rod that goes down into your fermenter, and that is very, very effective as long as ambient temperature is within 30 degrees of your fermentation temperature. And okay, not my garage. <laughs> yeah, really. And then lately we've uh, we've moved all the way up to uh, glycol chilled uh, conical fermenters, which are kind of like the ultimate. But let's let's say that you're doing it. You know, the way that I started off with the tub of water or maybe even a chest freezer, I like to, number one, chill the wort to a few degrees below my intended fermentation temperature so that the heat of fermentation, right, it's exothermic, yeah, there's a big word, the heat of fermentation will bring the wort up to fermentation temperature. There's another school of thought that says start it warm and cool it down. I have never cared for the results when I've been doing that. The other thing that I do is I maintain a reasonably low temperature for ales, pretty much every style of ale. I'll start around 63 degrees Fahrenheit and uh, let that run for maybe four or five days bump it up in the 70 to 74 degree area for maybe another three, four days, and then crash it down around 33 degrees for a week or so to finish it up. If I'm doing a lager, uh, I'll start it maybe more like in the 52 to 55 degree Fahrenheit range. That's kind of my general fermentation schedule for almost everything. Uh, what do you do? Well, I think the most important one is the first part that you left off of, which is, chill the wort down appropriately or chill it down as much as you can and then stick it in a cold area until it gets down to fermentation temperature or below fermentation. Temperature. Yeah, I, I did. I did uh, say chill it to below uh, fermentation temp before you pitch. Yep. That, that to me is the, the most important thing you can do because it gives you a lot of leeway to deal with the fact that most of your yeast off flavors come during that early lag phase, right. you know, while they're doing all the reproduction and uh, multiplying. So if you keep that part cool, you can almost get away with murder in the rest of the world. But 
so for me, that's the biggest one. And then after that, like even with my saisons, for instance, which have the silliest, stupidest temperature control ever, which is just basically a big water bath that I add some ice to, you know, that usually works pretty well, except for when, like today, my garage is over 105 degrees. Oh boy! So, so I'm going to guess, uh, Justin, that in the Czech Republic you do not have that problem. Uh, so you're probably in a much safer world. I do still like a water bath actually for the fact that it will sort of temper out changes because water has such a large heat capacity that it takes a while to swing it. So it helps buffer any sort of heat changes that you get from the environment or from fermentation. So from a cheap point of view, that's where I go. And then the other one is if you are using something like a chest freezer or a refrigerator with an override thermostat on it, make sure the override thermostat is taped up against the side of your fermenter so it's measuring the temperature of the fermenter and not the measure of the air. Right, right. And again, do not start warm and then chill it down. A lot of people do that. They say, oh, it gets off to a faster start. Number one. Yeah, well, that, that was all that was all done because people didn't know how to treat their yeast right. Yeah, right. I mean, fast starts are overrated. Uh, there is very little difference to your beer between a six-hour start and a 48-hour start. Um, and, you know, you're sacrificing. Assuming you have good sanitation practice. Yeah, right. Well, you know, we assume that. Everybody out there listening, I'm sure, is really hip on sanitation. But, you know, what you're actually doing is you're sacrificing beer quality for a fast start. So just don't go there. Okay. Next part of the question is, what other changes besides temperature control and water chemistry do you recommend that contributed positively to your brewing process? I would say the biggest thing is brewing a whole lot. There's nothing like experience to be a great teacher uh, and I have to say, there's nothing like screwing up a batch to really learn a good lesson about what you never want to do again. Uh, yeah, but make sure you drink some of your screw-up. Nah, well, just enough to know it's a screw-up so that then you can throw it away. People who punish themselves by drinking an entire batch of bad beer need to go see us. Oh, no, 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 no. The, no, that's, uh, that's sadomasochism. Yeah, you, you need help if you're going to do that. But, uh, you know, I would say there is nothing like brewing a lot taking careful notes and sitting down with the beer when it's done and really tasting it critically and writing down some tasting notes along with your brewing notes so that on the next batch of that beer or when you want to do something else, you can look back at that information and uh, make use of what you've learned. And for me, I think the biggest key that I learned was good yeast maintenance. I think, as we said with your first part of the question, I think if you have active, healthy booming yeast that are ready to go, you can be forgiven a great number of other brewing sins. Yeah, I, I mean, I hate to say it, and probably I shouldn't, but I will. If you pitch healthy, active yeast, you can even get by with screwing up your sanitation a bit, because hopefully your yeast will kick in and take over. Now, don't take that to me, and I said sanitation isn't important. What the point is, is that healthy, active yeast is important. Exactly. All right. Part three, what is uh, your desert island beer? Uh, Denny, you want me to take this first since I have a short Yeah, answer? go ahead. Yeah, Saison de Ponce avec la bambou. <laughs> I knew you were going to say that. Yeah. Uh, you know, I would have... There are just so many beers out there I love. I would say... I can only pick one, huh? Uh, well, that's what he's saying. Well, actually, he does say uh, uh, Desert Island beers. Okay. Well, then in that case, I would say Trumer Pilsner and 
Ale Song, uh, uh, French 75. Those, those are the two yeah. beers I couldn't live without. And if you were to go, go ahead and do that, then I think I would have to throw Genesee Cream Ale in there just for those days when I didn't want to drink heavy beer. <laughs> yeah. Okay, that works for me, man. So, uh, Justin, sure. I hope you're cool with each of us picking two because we did, and that's the way it is. Yeah. All right, and our next question comes from uh, Jeremy Flathead from Australia who answered his own question. So, easiest question ever. Uh, he says, I have a beer recipe that I've made twice now. Second is fermenting. However, the first time I overmilled the Golden Naked Oats and struggled with the sparge. This time I milled less and got a great runoff. I do a single mash using 12 liters of water in the initial stage and about 12 liters of water to sparge. The recipe calculator I use, Brewmate, no affiliation, it's free, suggests I should end up with an original gravity of 1065 and an ABV of 6%. However, I surprised myself with a consistent OG of 1034 for both batches and an ABV closer to 3%. It's actually a very pleasant drop at this ABV, I can imagine. I was aiming for a very low bitter, high hop character, like drinking beer as an introduction to beer for non-beer drinkers. I achieved this with a very mouth-watering, juicy, perceived sweetness, but I'm at a loss in regards to where my 30 points of specific gravity have gone. What are your thoughts on the recipe, and where am I losing extract- extraction efficiency? Well, my base reaction to this would have been to check your mill, because... Nine times out of ten, if you're having efficiency problems, particularly something like this, it comes down to the mill not getting the grain crushed enough. However, before I could answer that to Jeremy, he followed up with an email and said, I think it's when your balance has been changed away in pounds. And in 1966, you went metric. Feel free to use as a, don't forget to validate your equipment public service announcement. Found when brewing something I've done before and know something not quite right with the color of the runoff. So there you go. Another stupid brewer trick. <laughs> and we didn't do it this time. Yay. Yay. But I love I love self-answering questions. And guys, don't forget, if you have you know these sort of brewing disasters or something like this, which turns into a, a tip, send it in. Because if you're doing it, somebody else is doing it. And so it's useful for us to share our common stupidity. Really, man, that's true. That That is exactly the kind of thing that I could do. The number of times I wake up in the morning and realize that my, my scales for breakfast are set to grams and not ounces, it constantly flummoxes me. <laughs> All right, third and final question. All right, the final question comes from Eric Strauss from Indiana, and he says, I've got a fermentation question. Wow, we just talked fermentation. Many recipes I see for lagers give a prescribed temperature and time schedule. Using Drew's Martzen recipe, for example, Drew states, cool the beer and ferment at around 50 degrees Fahrenheit for two to three weeks. Raise the temperature to 60 to 65 degrees Fahrenheit for one to two days. Crash cool back to 50 degrees Fahrenheit, rack, and then proceed to lower the temp by one to two degrees Fahrenheit per day until resting at 34 degrees Fahrenheit. Lager for two to five months before serving. My question is, besides the potential biotransformation during lagering, isn't two to three weeks at 50 degrees a bit long to wait to start the diacetyl rest? Frequently, my lagers at 50 degrees using YUS 2206 only take three to five days to get to a gravity appropriate for starting a diacetyl rest. The prevailing wisdom says that once a beer has reached final gravity, the yeast don't do anything else. If I were to wait two to three weeks, fermentation would be complete, and a diacetyl rest at that point would do nothing to clean up the fermentation. Is there something I'm missing? I'm a fan of the Narzis-style fermentation techniques and do not use extended lagering time, except for clarity, if that says anything about my standard methods. 
I got my thoughts on this, man, but you're the one that's being questioned here. Yeah, so, okay, now, using the Martin ex- recipe as an example, remember, that's a super traditional lagering schedule. So that is why that's written up that way. Um, and, you know, I've done many and many a Martin in that particular fashion. And I always at least give it two, th- two weeks in the primary if I'm doing a cold ferment, like a properly cold ferment, not doing an accelerated sort of fermentation schedule, because that's about how long it takes for me to see, like, the croissant finally start to, you know, uh, waft away, right? So that's when I've always done it, and that was what I was kind of taught. And so that fermentation schedule there is there. And guess what? Even using that Muniker yeast that loves to throw a ton of diacetyl and needs a diacetyl rest desperately more than anything in the entire universe, uh, doing two to three weeks and then raising up to diacetyl rest temperatures has always cleaned up the diacetyl when I've done it. Now, I do something different a lot of times these days when I do make a lager. But, you know, I put that recipe together to demonstrate what is a sort of properly traditional old school lagering uh, schedule particularly for a marathon so and now your thoughts yeah that is indeed an old school lagering schedule and i don't think anybody really does that anymore and i think that they have found at least a a few canards with that uh why yeast 2206, first of all, is one of my favorite lager yeasts, especially for a Martin, because it almost never throws diacetyl unless you really screw something up. A good long lager fermentation can actually keep you from needing to do a diacetyl rest, right? The reason you raise the temperature for a diacetyl rest is you're trying to make the yeast more active to consume the diacetyl. So by doing a nice long primary fermentation, that yeast is going to have plenty of time to clean up the diacetyl, and you won't even really need to worry about a diacetyl rest. Uh, some strains, of course, are more more prone to it than others, but 2206 is extremely well behaved. So, you know, if you're doing a shorter fermentation, yeah, a diacetyl rest can be handy. Uh, I would normally do maybe like Five to seven days in primary, uh, check the gravity, and uh, if it was down in the area where I had expected it to finish, then I would start doing the diacetyl rust. Eric is exactly right, though, that you need some fermentables in there for the yeast to work on, or the diacetyl rust won't do you any good. The other thing that I would probably take issue with is... Uh, to reduce the temperature gradually at one to two degrees Fahrenheit per day. True, that is the traditional method for doing it. But if your yeast is done, you know, and you've reached final gravity and everything has been cleaned up and everything, there's no need to do that. The reason you lower it gradually is to keep the yeast active. If your yeast is done, you don't need to do that. So I will just crash it back down to 33 right there. So, you know, there, there you go. There's that, the two takes on it. There's the traditional lager schedule, and there's the Denny Chat with Chumps lager schedule. There we go. All right, and I think that's all for questions this week. But I do think it's time for us to get a quick tip and something other than the beer, and then get the heck out of here. Okay. So, Denny, what's your quick tip? My quick tip today is something we've talked about a little bit before, and we talked about in the book. We actually talked about it with Brad. When you're doing water adjustment, think of it as two discrete steps. You first of all want to add the minerals that you need 
to adjust the water for the flavor of the beer you're making. Uh, we've mentioned many times we both use uh, Brune Water. They have a uh, color flavor guide, so you're not, like, say, picking Munich water. You're saying, okay, I'm making a yellow malty beer or something like that. And uh, Brad tells us he's just added that into Beersmith, too, so good on him. That is a much better way to pick your water profile. Add the minerals first to get the flavor you need. Take a look at what your spreadsheet says that's doing to pH, and then either add acid or pickling lime to lower or raise the pH into the proper area. Do the the minerals first, then worry about the pH. I would say in general, don't try and overuse the minerals to adjust pH. I saw somebody recently suggesting that if you added enough gypsum, it will lower your pH. It's like, yeah, it certainly will, but you won't want to drink the beer. So get your minerals in there, then deal with pH. There you go. Good quick tip. And, you know, it's kind of like the using uh, your water salts as salt and pepper. Yeah, exactly. Good way to think about it. What about something other? So in something other, again, as always, not all of life is defined by beer or gin or whatever drink of choice you have. Sometimes it's defined by things elsewise. And both of us actually have recommendations uh, today that come from Netflix, of all places. And for me, I actually have kind of two that are related to each other. I just completely binged the John Favreau Chef miniseries that he did with uh, Roy Choi and going around to a lot of different restaurants and kind of learning things. And it's become very clear that because of the movie Chef, or maybe he was in the movie Chef because of this, Favreau has actually become deeply obsessed about the idea of food and how it works and the actual chef lifestyle. So it's really cool to also see him get accepted by all these chefs and explore this culture. And then right back on top of that, Netflix just released a brand new series called The Taco Chronicles. And it's all in Spanish, but it's all wandering around Mexico to all these different sort of uh, taco styles and giving you an introduction and an exploration of these different sorts of tacos. So the very first one that they do is tackling Mexico City and Tacos al Pastor, you know, which is from you know, Lebanese immigrants that then became this whole thing in Mexico City. And I will tell you this right now. Do not watch that show without being well-fed. Because if you aren't well-fed, you are going to want the nearest good taco to you. And, you know, and yes, it's all in Spanish, and it's this wonderfully flowery, very passionate uh, Spanish narration. However, there are English subtitles. Oh, good. I got to say, man, I have both of those on my Netflix list because when I'm on my treadmill, I love to watch cooking shows. That seems... That, that seems kind of punishing. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it, it, what the thing is, is that I get so absorbed in them, I don't notice how long I'm on the treadmill. So I don't get bored and say, okay, 20 minutes is enough. I'm stopping now. You know, so that's... There you go. And speaking of not getting bored on the treadmill and Netflix. Yeah, I, I've been watching a lot of uh, Apollo shows lately uh, in honor of the 50th anniversary of the moon landing. There's just a bunch of them out there. And I ran across one on Netflix called Mission Control, The Unsung Heroes of Apollo. And this is one of the best ones I've seen. It's just totally fascinating because it focuses on the people who put the flight together and, and mission control rather than the astronauts. So it's kind of a, a different tack than a lot of the other shows that are out there. 
Totally fascinating. If you are into all these Apollo things that are going on right now, I really urge you to watch this because it's uh, different than any of the other ones that are out there, and it's really, really cool. There you go. Food and space. <laughs> Make space the for final food. Frontiers. Yeah, that's right, man, both of them. All right, let's get out of here. Okay, thank you all for listening to Experimental Brewing. You can catch all of our latest adventures and writings by going to our website, experimentalbrew.com. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, where we're at EXP Brewing. We're on Facebook. We're on Instagram. I hang out on a lot of different beer forums, uh, mainly the AHA discussion forum. You can find Drew on the Homebrew subreddit and the Slack Homebrew channel, and probably everywhere else, too. If you want to ask us a question, suggest topics, recipes, experiments, or even just rant and rave, you can email us at podcast at experimentalbrew.com. Or if you want to get a hold of each one of us individually, I'm Denny at experimentalbrew.com, and he's Drew at experimentalbrew.com. And, of course, you can always leave us a voicemail or text at 626-765-1AL. And please be sure to let us know who you are. So, until next time... Remember to always brew experimentally. Or brew wacky. And we'll see you on the next episode of Experimental Brewing. Mm-hmm.